Well, we are in Romans chapter 12, and if you would turn there, we are spending a couple of Sundays in verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace this morning, and we know that we stand in grace, Lord, that because of your sovereign greatness and purpose in our lives, that nothing can remove us from your hand, nothing can move us out of your grace, and yet, Lord, we need understanding, we need your spirit this morning, and we pray that you would help us to think well through this text as we come to you as your people Longing to hear, longing to remember, and longing to obey you. In your name we pray, amen. One evening, some friends got together for dinner. As the hostess was bringing the main dish to the table, the unthinkable happened. Entering the dining room, she stumbled and fell headlong, dropping the main course, shattering the serving dish, and ruining the meal. Of course, as good friends would, there was an immediate reaction from all of the guests. One person quickly stood up and directed, you know what, would you do, would you do us a favor? Would you grab a mop? And maybe you could help her up. I'll take a look at this rug. Maybe someone could figure out how we're going to replace the food. Maybe we need to order something. And could someone make sure that there's no broken glass left, that we make sure we get all of that up? Right away, someone else said, how can I help? They grabbed a mop, they grabbed the towel, they grabbed the 409, they began to clean, vacuum, wipe. Two of the guests were found at the fallen hostess's side. One responded, are you okay? I'm so sorry. Oh, I just feel for you. Let me, is your ankle hurting? Let's put something on that. Let's get some ice. That's right. Put your arm around my shoulders Ups daisies. Can I pray for you? The other followed up with, you know what, that happens to all of us. In fact, that just happened to me last week. But do be more careful next time. Don't be discouraged, okay? You've just got to press through this. Remember, God has a purpose for everything, even a little stumble in the dining room. Still another guest could be seen crouching on the floor, inspecting what had happened, analyzing the situation. Soon they rose to their feet and announced, okay, everybody, here's what happened. There was some water on the floor in there. There's a little uneven surface here, one, two, three. And I think the scriptures shine some light on this. 
As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, one, two, three. And before we get back to dinner, I want to make sure that we all know how to avoid this in the future. So I have three precautions for you. They all start with R. Okay. Uh, maybe. Maybe. At this point, another guest popped their head in from the kitchen and said, okay, I've called and ordered pizza for everyone. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. How much do we owe you for that? No, 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 no. Let me get this. I'm happy to take care of dinner. And lastly, one guest emerged from another room where he had just spontaneously shaved his head. He boldly jumped up and stood in the middle of the dining room table and proclaimed in a booming voice, Thus saith the Lord, do not fear, dear hostess, for he who reigns on high has seen your trouble. Do not fear. He will sustain you and bless your home in the years to come. Yea, the Lord will increase your hospitality. All right, maybe a little overdramatic. You can see that this is a way that the gifts are represented in this story. Each of the dinner guests illustrates the working out of the gifts that we see listed here in Romans chapter 12. The story is meant to illustrate how the Holy Spirit has gifted the various members of Christ's body to build each other up. How to help us live in community. As a first step, he says in verse 3 that we are each to evaluate ourselves humbly and soberly with sober judgment. In verses 4 and 5, a second step to this vibrant life in the community is to embrace your membership in the body. You belong to God's people. You are members of Christ's body. You are members one of another. The third step is to exercise your gifts. Exercise your gifts. Having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You have gifts that God has sovereignly supplied and assigned to you. Every Christian does. Today we want to take a closer look then at these seven specific gifts that Paul lists here. But first let me say a few general things about spiritual gifts that I think will be helpful. Paul doesn't use the term, by the way, spiritual gifts here in this context in Romans, but he does in other places. And it's obvious that that's what he's talking about. So let me just give you six observations then regarding spiritual gifts. First of all, spiritual gifts are different than talent, ability, skill, and personality. Spiritual gifts are supernatural motivations and supernatural enablements. Playing the piano is not a spiritual gift. The ability to speak in public is not necessarily the gift of teaching. So the spiritual gifts are something that only belong to believers, and they are divine enablements that the Holy Spirit equips and empowers in the lives of believers in the community of faith. Secondly, spiritual gifts and their application can be overemphasized or underemphasized. It is possible to spend so much time trying to figure out what the spiritual gifts are 
or even discovering your own spiritual giftedness, that your giftedness rusts. There are sometimes emphasis put on certain gifts as superior to others. Sometimes the gifts are over-categorized and over-defined. Even here in Romans chapter 12, these may be broader categories that Paul is trying to, to highlight, bring to the surface. On the other hand, sometimes spiritual gifts are downplayed. Sometimes they're really never explained. There's no emphasis on them and no teaching on how the body functions. That may be just because we don't believe in those or we don't think they're important or whatever it is. Paul here assumes that those of us who are reading this letter know what these gifts are or the importance at least of of having them and probably even identifying them. He can't say to, to the church, those of you who have the gift of serving, serve without assuming that, in general, believers know who's gifted with the gifts of serving. Thirdly, this list is not exhaustive. Every spiritual gift is not listed here. We know that because there are other lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, "...he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers." Now, I think these are offices or roles, even though they are gifts. They're not gifts in the same way. They're not motivations, but they're still gifts to the church. 1 Corinthians 12 is especially especially poignant when we discuss the spiritual gifts. There, Paul lists many other gifts than he lists here. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and following lists the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpreting tongues, apostles, teachers, helps, administrations. And some of these overlap with some of these here in Romans 12. Some are different ones. It's a lengthier list. So we know that Romans 12 doesn't list all of the gifts. The question would be, why does it list the ones that it does list? And I think that there are probably one of two reasons. Paul is summarizing by using these general categories, or these listed are the most common. That in the churches, these would be the ones that people were the most familiar with. And he's using those as examples of the variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit distributes to believers. The readers would then be expected to draw principles from what Paul has to say about these and apply them to working out other gifts. Fourthly, the distribution of spiritual gifts is much like a painting. It's much like a painting. Now, there are a lot of different theories okay, about how believers are spiritually gifted. Some believe that when the Holy Spirit gifted you, that he gave you a primary gift and a secondary gift. Some of you have probably heard that. It's possible, but the scriptures really don't say that. Others believe that all believers have been given all of the gifts, just to varying degrees. So all of the gifts belong to every one of us. We just either use them or don't, or some are more strongly gifted in certain areas than others. Again, the Bible doesn't explain this, And I think we have to be careful when we're reading into the white spaces 
Okay, but from my experience and observations over the years, the distribution of gifts in the body is so unique, you really can't chart it. Each believer is a unique blend of giftedness. Some of us are heavily gifted in certain gifts and are kind of don't have other gifts at all. Others of us are somewhat gifted here and really gifted here and really gifted here, but none is really that much stronger than the other. Each believer is a unique blend of these things. Some have a, a heavily gifted, some have a smattering of giftedness. When those spiritual gifts are combined with an individual's personality, intellect, background, personality, and so on, you have a whole person. It's like the Holy Spirit is a painter, and every canvas is unique. And he puts little shades of certain blues here and greens and reds on this canvas. And over here, he makes this one super green with just a little bit of pink at the bottom. However you want to imagine that. But every person is unique in these gifts. Fifthly, spiritual gifts are displayed in various arenas. They're worked out in different venues. The gift itself doesn't dictate the means by which you contribute to the church community. For example, just because you have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you should want to preach every Sunday. That giftedness might work itself out in a small group. It might work itself out in a children's classroom. might work itself out in leading a community group. There are all kinds of different venues that that might happen. Same with any of the other gifts. So it's one thing to come to grips with giftedness. It's another then to talk about where should I be employing this gift? Where should I be serving? Where should I be giving? Where should I be showing mercy? Sixthly, participation is the best way of discovery. Participation is the best way of discovery. It's okay to take the spiritual gifts questionnaires and tests. I think those can be helpful. I think they're most helpful in helping someone identify what really motivates them in terms of gifting. I have a few of those in my files. But remember, they're not foolproof. And again, they can sometimes be overly categorical. But they are helpful. But it's also necessary to involve yourself. Don't sit around and wait until you've analyzed everything and kind of have your spiritual gift resume together to be involved in the life of the church. In fact, these verses emphasize our need to use them, to use these gifts. Did you notice the phrase that follows each of the gifts that are listed here? Prophecy in proportion to our faith. Service or serving in our serving. The teacher in his teaching, the exhorter in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity with zeal, with cheerfulness. These phrases reinforce the need to act, to actually go about using the tools that the Holy Spirit has equipped you with as the people of God. So exercise your gifts. 
right, so as we look at this list then, at the top, we find probably the most controversial gift of this list, and that is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Let's look at verse 6. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, this could easily turn into its own sermon or series. Okay, so I'll do my best to be concise. And it may be that we just cover this one today and get to the rest of them another time. But there are two basic views on prophecy in the New Testament. The first is that the gift of prophecy is the declaration of authoritative revelation from God. Prophecy is the declaration of authoritative revelation from God, meaning that prophets exercising this gift spoke for God with the same authority as the prophets of the Old Testament and therefore equal with Scripture. That certainly is what prophecy was in the Old Testament. If you think of Moses, the greatest of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way down through the minor, what we call the minor prophets, they spoke the words of God. Thus saith the Lord, and it is recorded, it is authoritative, it is binding for God's people. Those who understand prophecy this way are then divided kind of into two groups. There are those who claim that this gifting and these revelations operate today and should be expected experience in the church. If someone says, I am prophetically speaking, I have a word from the Lord, and boom, they say something, that that is prophecy, that is authoritative. There are those who understand the gift this way, but would claim then that this gift has ceased that it is no longer in operation because the New Testament is now completed. We have a canon. We have a body of Scripture that is alone authoritative and binding for the people of God, the church. And so any further prophecy or revelation would have to be added to the Bible, which the Bible warns us not to do. So that's the first view, two disagreeing groups who hold that New Testament prophecy is authoritative revelation from God. The second view distinguishes between two kinds of prophecy or two levels of prophecy. Authoritative prophecy, which would be called a capital P prophecy, and a non-authoritative prophecy. Even if it is from God, it would be a lowercase p So the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, then, is a lowercase p prophecy. So it's not the same as the Old Testament prophets proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Now, of those who hold to this distinction between a capital P prophecy and a lowercase p prophecy, one group will say that the lowercase p has nothing to do with revelation, but only proclamation. So that the act of preaching or proclaiming the gospel is this gift of prophecy. So the gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of prophecy, here in Romans chapter 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, these references are simply referring to proclamation, gospel proclamation. 
The other way of understanding the lowercase p prophecy is that it does deal with revelation. But that revelation is not authoritative and binding or even necessarily error-free like the Old Testament capital P prophecy. This understanding is best articulated by the theologian Wayne Grudem, for those of you who are curious. After a lot of study over the years, though I don't see everything the way that Wayne Grudem does, I've come to hold this view, generally speaking. The main reason that I understand it this way is that there are just too many examples in the New Testament showing that the gift of prophecy was revelatory, that something was being revealed. But it did not carry the same binding authority as the apostles and Scripture. The New Testament even indicates that the exercising of this gift of prophecy was subject to teaching and instruction in the early church. I'll just give you an example. In Acts chapter 21, and I'll come back to this example a couple times this morning. In Acts chapter 21, Paul is headed to Jerusalem, and on his way, he stops in Caesarea Philippi. A prophet named Agabus, who we see earlier in the book of Acts, travels down to give a word of prophecy And he is one of a group of prophets from the city of Jerusalem. He comes down to see Paul. And like the individual guest in my little made-up story about the dinner being spilled and the guy jumping up on top of the table and proclaiming, right? Agabus does something because prophets were always doing crazy stuff to show that they were speaking from the Lord to get people's attention. Agabus grabs Paul's belt Now, how he gets Paul's belt, I don't know. But he grabs Paul's belt, and he wraps it around his own wrists. And he says, thus saith the Lord, that whoever goes to Jerusalem, the owner of this belt who goes to Jerusalem, will be bound by the Jews and handed over, and so on. Now, as it turns out, Paul goes to Jerusalem. In fact, everybody around Paul, including Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, because he uses the word we, we cried out to Paul. We begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They knew Agabus' prophecy was trustworthy. They knew it was from the Lord. Please don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. And Paul's response to everybody is, why are you breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to go to prison for The Lord and the gospel, I'm ready to die for him. I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, if Agabus' prophecy is Old Testament prophecy on the level of Moses or Elijah, how should Paul respond? Paul doesn't respond, well, I'm an apostle and I have a different word from the Lord. Paul hears what Agabus says and he evaluates it and he says, I believe it, and I'm ready not only to go to prison, but to die. And Paul ignores it, and he goes to Jerusalem anyway. Do you see what I'm getting at? The nature of this prophetic office and what's going on in the New Testament is not the same as Elijah speaking, or Moses, or Isaiah. So the New Testament 
seems to, it describes this, and there are other examples of this, that this office of prophecy, this gift of prophecy, operates differently than the authoritative prophecy of the Old Testament. So, I understand the gift of prophecy then to be God-given insight and understanding into others' lives or circumstances. It might be the life or the circumstances of the church body as a whole. And then that understanding and insight is communicated for their edification. A few examples in the New Testament include for the foretelling of future events. This example of Agabus in Acts 21 is one of them. There's another one in Acts chapter 11 where Agabus, the same prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So there is a foretelling aspect that can be, but foretelling doesn't seem to be the norm based on other texts about this gift, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So the gift of prophecy then might be this illumination regarding a particular person's hardship or spiritual state and communicated from one person to another person. Or it might be insight into the life or state of the church and proclaimed to a congregation. It might be confirming. It might be counsel. It might be warning. But whatever its content, it is a gift to be used in proportion to that faith or his faith. Which means a person with this gift is to exercise it in proportion to the maturity or the depth of his or her faith in Christ. As this person's faith grows, as his or her trust in Christ increases, so should the mature exercise of this gift. That's how I understand this phrase, in proportion to that faith or his faith. Now, the inevitable question becomes, how and when do we see this gift in operation? I have to be honest, I'm not confident that I see a lot of evidence of this gift in operation. Now, just to be clear, I do not hold to a view that some of the spiritual gifts have ceased, strictly speaking, meaning that some gifts were given for a particular time period and then the Holy Spirit pulled them off the table that is what's called a cessationist view. I am kind of a leaky cessationist. In one sense, I kind of want to be because it explains things, but when I do exegesis in the New Testament, I cannot say that the New Testament is very clear that there are certain gifts that are no longer in operation. However, I do believe that a number of the gifts we see mentioned in the New Testament and being practiced in the New Testament are rare. And some of them were even rare in the early church. So, for example, this debate often comes up about the gift of tongues. Is the gift of tongues one that we should be expecting to practice and operate? Now, if we're going to, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about the limitations of that gift and the expectations of when and how it can be used. It has to be someone who can interpret and other things. 
other boundaries for it. But of all of the New Testament, the gift of tongues is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. That's the only letter. Now, it's mentioned in the book of Acts is taking place, but the only teaching is in 1 Corinthians. Was there no gift of tongues in Thessalonica, Philippi, Colossae, Ephesus? Did none of those churches have it? Maybe, maybe not. If they did have it, did no other church struggle with how to use it or become puffed up in pride because they had a lot of flashy gifts like the Corinthian church? I just think it was rare. I don't think it was a common gift. And Paul even indicates to the Corinthians, you are super gifted. You have a lot of gifts that other churches and other bodies of believers don't experience, which is part of the reason they were struggling with this spiritual pride that they were hyper-spiritual. It was leading to divisions and all kinds of things. I just believe that some of these gifts that we look at in the New Testament, we see them happening, were actually even rare in the early church, that they weren't that common. So it's not sound exegetically when we come to the New Testament to say, well, that gift has ceased. It's just, it no longer exists. That's not possible for whatever reason. But it's also not sound to assume that the Holy Spirit intends all of the gifts to be in full operation all of the time, down through the age. Prophecy in the New Testament would seem to be a fairly common gift, though in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says he wishes more could prophesy because of how it builds up the church. But I simply don't see it taking place today the way it's presented in the New Testament. Now, some will say something like, I have a word from the Lord, or the Lord told me that you're having a hard time. Depending on what somebody means by that, they may or may not be claiming to have received a prophetic word. Because I understand that sometimes there's terminology that we use in the way we express things. Okay. I read one account of a speaker, a preacher who paused in the middle of his sermon to say, I don't know why, but I just, I just know that someone here is about to leave their marriage, and the Lord says, go back. Is that the gift of prophecy? Maybe. It concerns me that sometimes what we call prophecies sound a lot more like fortune cookie predictions. You know what I'm talking about? You break open the fortune cookie, because we're all curious. We pull out the little slip of paper, and it'll say something like, you will meet somebody new today. Ooh. <laughs> that problem you're facing will be solved soon. Those kinds of things. I think sometimes we think of what we think of as prophecies sound like that. They're kind of vague. They're inevitably true. Kind of like when the meteorologist says there's a 50% chance of rain today. Can he be wrong? If it rains, he says, I told you there was a 50% chance. If it doesn't rain, he says, I told you there was only a 50% chance. Right? Now, I'm not saying that it's not true encouragement. I'm not saying something like, you know, I just feel like you're having a hard time. I'm not saying that's not the Holy Spirit. I'm just questioning whether or not that's the gift of prophecy that we see played out. 
especially when prophecies seem to be very specific in the New Testament. Acts chapter 11, Agabus, a famine over the whole world. Acts 21, Agabus says to Paul specifically that he would specifically be bound specifically in Jerusalem. If I were to preach, or if this speaker or preacher were to have said, you know, I just feel like you right there, third row back, second chair over, wearing the green sweater, you're about to leave your marriage. And you've spent the last three years planning to leave it. And the Lord's telling me to tell you, don't do it. Go back to your spouse. And I know why you're leaving it. It's because of this reason. Go back to your spouse. That's something different, isn't it? So, if I were to come into any group of 200 people, and I were to say something like, look, I believe, uh, hold on, everybody. I believe some, somebody in here is about to, uh, is really depressed, is facing severe depression. And the Lord has told me he'll be with you. What are the chances I would be wrong? I'm not saying that wouldn't be encouraging. I'm not saying that wouldn't be the Holy Spirit even motivating me to give that word of encouragement I don't take that as the gift of prophecy, okay? The New Testament seems to talk about something else. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that prophesying and gathered worship can affect the unbeliever because, quote, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Does that sound like a vague kind of... Reference? It sounds like that if you are prophesying, if there's prophecy going on in the congregation, an unbeliever walks in, he might be confronted with his heart exposed very specifically, and he'll know for sure that God is among you, and he'll end up in worship. That doesn't sound vague. I think sometimes our prophecies, what we think of as prophecy, are actually is actually wisdom and insight in operation, where the Holy Spirit takes our understanding of Scripture, and depending on the maturity of our faith and our understanding, helps us look into somebody's life or circumstances and understand and have insight into how that applies and how it will work out. I believe a lot of times that that's what we, we think of that as prophecy, So I guess in a way, then, you can say the New Testament leaves us to deduce some things that it's not explicit about when it comes to the gift of prophecy. I will also say this. I could be wrong. I could be wrong in this. And as long as we don't go beyond Scripture's boundaries, there is some gray area about the precise nature of prophecy that we shouldn't divide over. Okay. I'm open to the possibility that the gift of prophecy might be operating at times that we're unaware of. 
I do think that's true. And maybe some of these things that I'm throwing out there, maybe that is the gift in operation. I think it's possible. But I just don't see it when I take what the New Testament actually does say and try to square up what we experience commonly. At the same time, I am not saying that the gift of prophecy has ceased. I don't believe the New Testament says that either. The closest thing that it says to that is 1 Corinthians 13, after Paul has talked about love, and he says that prophecies will cease, tongues will cease, all of these things will cease, and then he points to the end when we're made perfect, the teleos, the end. That's when they'll cease. We know they'll cease then, and only these remain, faith, hope, and love, right? But it could be that it's operating in a way that I'm unaware of, or that we're unaware of. On the other hand, there are also abuses of this claim that sometimes have to be confronted. It could be used very manipulatively. I don't know, the Lord told me that you should give me X amount of money. Those are the kinds of things, though, okay? It could be used in more subtle ways. You know, I, we want out of some of so, You know, the Lord just told me I, I shouldn't do that anymore. So there are abuses that need to be confronted at times, and there are some claims to prophecy that can be more innocent but still misleading and unhealthy for Christians, so we have to use discernment, all right? And again, like I said, there's some, within the boundaries of what the Bible actually says and doesn't say, there is some gray area as to what this is and how it's to function. But if you take what the Bible actually does say, I think we need to use a lot of discernment. But the bottom line in Romans chapter 12 is that if the gift is there, if somebody is gifted in prophecy, then they are to use it. They are to use it for the good of others. They are to use it for the good of the body. And that any claim to speaking prophetically, even as a lowercase p, New Testament prophetically, is subject to the apostolic teaching. It is subject to the word and the teaching of Scripture. But as a first step then, for those with the gift of prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. I realize that some of you here this morning are thinking, yes, we need three more sermons on prophecy. And then there are others of you who are going, oh, I hope we don't have six more sermons, one per gift in this list. I think we'll be able to take the rest of them all in one shot. That's the gift of prophecy and a good start. But regardless of, start using your gifts or continue to use them as the Lord leads you and empowers you, right? Let's pray. Lord, give us discernment. We thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, help us to stand firm on Scripture where it is unalterably clear and to come with humility where it is not clear, even if, Lord, we 
choose to be definitive at points for the sake of moving forward in life and ministry. But Lord, I pray that if this gift of prophecy, if it is to be known and used, Lord, that you would do so and that you, uh, we as your people would be open and ready and receptive to the work of your spirit through the gifts that you have sovereignly distributed in the body for its building up. And that really, Lord, is our hearts, that we would use the gifts that you have given us faithfully for one another's good, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, Lord, but, but thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together, continue to worship our great King.